Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, and I should apologize because last week in all of our excitement about episode 50 in our big landmark podcast, I didn't even mention, A, the fact that Carl has another podcast, and B, the fact that he's recorded, what, about 110 episodes of that one? Is that right, Carl? That's about right. So, yes, they're shorter, but I think if we if we do the math, we find that, that Carl has has produced double the amount of content as the Tennis Abstract podcast alone in the same time frame, going back about two years. So that makes for quite an impressive and interesting archive to plow through for those of you looking for more to listen to, so please do that. We also should apologize for some quality issues in our landmark episode 50. Um, my microphone seems to be on the fritz a little bit, so our our tracks got out of sync, so those of you who made it to the end of last week's episode might not have enjoyed it as much as usual because we were talking over each other and there were long pauses and stuff like that, so hopefully we'll get that cleared up and I'll certainly do more checking uh, before publishing the next few episodes. Jeff, you uh, said we should apologize. Let's let's apologize. Yes, we are apologizing. Also, uh, the way we're going to be sure to solve this is Jeff is just going to talk monologuing for the last 40 minutes of the show, so I can't interrupt him. Yay. Everyone has that much more to look forward to. That's our way of making it up to you. So I promise I was kidding. Keep listening. <laughs> yes, we promise. So... Big week in men's tennis, especially this past week. There was a, a WTA international in Acapulco, but a lot more big news, bigger name players on the men's side, starting with the biggest of them all. Hi there, angry Nadal and Djokovic fans. It is time, as usual, to talk about Roger Federer. Federer won the tournament in Dubai, and Carl, this seems like a lot of tournaments for Federer. Do you know how many titles he's up to now? Uh, well, you said I've recorded about 110, 30 loves. So, yeah, I think it was like somewhere like 70 or 150, I'm not, somewhere in that range. Somewhere between 70 and 150. That's the, the high-quality tennis analysis that you come to the Tennis Abstract podcast for, everyone. So, yes, it's Federer's 100th title. Um, and let's let's start with these big numbers. So, he's at 100. He's only the second player ever to reach 100. The first was Jimmy Connors, who got to 109 in his very long and storied career. And, Carl, I wonder what what your gut feeling is at the, this point. Do you think Federer is going to get to 109 or 110? My gut feeling is yes, only because my gut feeling about his motivation to get there is that it's quite high. Now, he disavowed motivation to reach milestones after reaching this one. I forget exactly what his quote was, but it was something like, everyone in the world cares about these milestones, but I just think it's great to play tennis or something. But in the past, he's let on that he's aware and appreciative and enjoys the adulation that comes with round numbers and or breaking records. So my hunch is... If he's within range and deciding about both retirement and scheduling, that he might make those decisions in part based on giving himself a chance to, to break the record. You know, if he doesn't win another title this year, that that clearly hurts his chances because that's a, his last year that he's this young to do it. So uh, that doesn't matter early in his career, but late in his career, 
it sets him back. So I think where he ends up this year will determine if he if he kind of goes for it and maybe plays some random 250s that he claims he wants to play because he never played in that country or never played that tournament or something. Um, but yeah, my gut is that a combination of a pretty good rest of the year and a pretty strong desire to be at the top when he retires will get him there. Yeah, that sounds sounds right. I I, I, I do think it would be it'll be increasingly um, what's the word I'm looking for. Will have increasing doubts about his sincerity about playing those 250s when he gets to 107 or 108. It's like, yeah, the golden swing has always appealed to me, that sort of thing. Although that would be pretty pretty fun if he went and played the golden swing. I yeah, mean, if he if he poached clay titles or. <laughs> I mean, given given how they played out this year, I think he could have won one or two matches. No tournaments. I know, I was just being snarky about Federer's recent lack of record on clay. Yeah, he, he probably could have won Sao Paulo. Yeah, not not the strongest clay court performances I've ever seen, not to take anything away from the guys who won them. But, yeah, not not particularly strong. Now, he, he's a little bit closer in terms of match wins, and that's also a Connors record he's chasing, right? The 1257? Yeah, I mean, he's closer in the sense that that feels more attainable. Like, if he got to... If he got to the titles, he probably would have had to have broken the match wins record first. So you think it's more likely he gets to the match record than the title record? I do. Yeah, I mean, I I think it comes out to, like, he needs to win uh, 40 or so matches for the rest of this year and then 40 next year. Is that... Yeah, that would do it. So, you know, that maybe he won't do it exactly that way, but assuming he isn't very close to retirement and... I don't really see a reason why he would be. I, I think he'll he'll get to that one. Of course, injury is the wild card in all of these, so I should probably lower my estimates by a bit just because of his age and the number of matches he'd need to put in to break either of them. Well, injuries are the wild card in the, the negative direction, but the wild card in the positive direction are wild cards, which <laughs> Federer could get until he's, what, in his 70s probably? I mean, he can he can keep trying for as long as he wants to, and tournaments will be happy to have him. By his 70s, like, artificial limb technology and racket technology will be such that he's probably got a few more decades in him. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll only be fair once Murray has a metal hip for Federer to have some replacement body parts as well. So I'm curious about an, another angle on this 100 titles is a lot of Federer's records, Nadal and Djokovic are either on his heels or at least making things interesting. At this point, Nadal has 80 titles and Djokovic has 73. I mean, the 20 titles, 20 more titles for Rafa, 27 more titles for Djokovic. Is, that, that's a big gap. But on the other hand, these guys are quite a bit younger. Djokovic especially is looking very strong these days. Do you think that we could see one more 100 title player in this generation? Yeah, for sure, at least. I mean, as strong as Federer looks now, Nadal and Djokovic have looked a lot stronger for the last six months and are a lot younger. And Djokovic also has made a pretty incredible comeback at an age where big injuries in the past probably would have ended careers or ended contention for big titles and records. So I... I said for sure we could. I'm, <laughs> you know, both of them have missed a lot of time. And, you know, Rafa has really struggled to win titles off of clay for the last 
oh, five years or so. So, you know, that, that would slow down his pace a bit, again, unless he started playing way more clay tournaments, which he totally could. I think you've written in the past about an alternate Rafa scheduling in which he plays every clay tournament he can and basically skips everything else. And that would probably maximize his title total each year. Uh, yeah, I don't think yeah, I ever have written about that, but that oh. would be interesting that if if you take what he's already playing, which is the, the Masters and Barcelona and French Open, plus the Golden Swing, plus Hamburg and maybe one of the 250s after Wimbledon, then, yeah, that's 10 tournaments altogether? Maybe throw yeah. in the Montevideo Challenger in November? <laughs> yeah, they, they'll make a rule that any challenger that Rafa plays is automatically 250. Sure. Yeah. So if yeah, if you if you wanted to maximize titles, that would be an interesting way to do it. It's worth looking into. What do you think of Rafa Novak's chances? I don't know. I I have a hard time seeing. In for Rafa, you're looking at five titles a year for four years, or maybe say four titles a year for five years. As I don't see it happening. Um, there's just too many injury question marks. I mean, we've been talking about injuries potentially shortening Nadal's career for more than a decade now. So to think that he'll still be winning elite type titles, even on clay in four or five years, that sounds like a lot to me. I mean, maybe he could do what we talked about Fed doing or what we were just talking about maximizing all those clay two fifties. If he did do that, then maybe, maybe that's a path to get there, but I don't see it. It's also tough for Novak too. I mean, he's, 27 titles is a lot. Um, Federer has... I, I just got this from a Reddit comment before we started recording. Um, Federer is five and a half years older than Nadal and has won 22 titles in that time frame. And as we've talked about many times on this podcast, Federer's had the best mid-30s of any player ever. So if 22 titles is what Djokovic can expect from the next five or six years, that still doesn't get him there. So... Could he do it? I mean, sure. It seems like it's a a pretty weak period right now, especially if Federer retires in the next year or so. So Novak could have another dominant year and rack up 10 or 12 titles right there. But weighted average of all the possible outcomes here, I can see both of them finishing with about 90. That seems a lot more realistic. Yeah, and the motivation may be lower if it's about reaching a milestone of 100 as opposed to breaking a record or passing Federer. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it seems really out of reach for either of them to get to 109 or 110. One, one maybe devil's advocate point, because you've mostly persuaded me, Federer is the best 30-something male tennis player we've seen I think at their ages, Rafa and Novak are better than Federer was at that age. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly. I guess he had that really good 2012 season when he got to number one again, but he was at number one for a short period, whereas they've been, um, they've each had more dominant periods lately. And they, so, and, and there are many things that, that Federer was the best at for a certain period or at a certain tournament or whatever that they have already started challenging. So if there's anyone who will challenge his performance at this age, they seem like pretty good contenders. Yeah, they're definitely the the contenders, if anyone is. I guess I I wouldn't put a lot of weight on the argument that 
because they're if they are better at say age 31 than Federer was I don't know how much you can extrapolate that they'll be better at 35 or 36 in the as I've been sort of poking at with some analysis lately tennis aging doesn't really seem to work that way you can't count on it being that linear so if you have this whole history of things happening that make players suddenly stop being effective or choosing to retire or dropping out with injury at age 31, 33, 35. I'm not sure that Nadal or Djokovic being really good makes that less likely to happen to them. So I think that's still the big risk. Um, It's tough to pinpoint exactly what that is. So it doesn't feel very convincing to say, I think something unspecific will happen (laughs) in some unspecific way at some unspecified time in the next three years. And Thus, I have made an airtight case, but that's kind of how I feel. I think that the uh, the odds, uh, maybe a better way to put it is, the odds are really low that nothing stops Nadal or Djokovic in the next five or six years. They'll need to chase down that record or the 100 title milestone. While we're talking about Nadal and Djokovic, there's one other twist on the Federer 100 I wanted to add. If he were more clutch in finals, I know we love clutch on this show, he would have passed Connors already, could have passed Connors already. My argument for that is using the stat we often cite on the show, dominance ratio. It's the ratio of return points one to opponent return points one. And if you're over one, then you're winning return points more than your opponent. And most of the time, that means you win the match. And he had 12 losses in finals in which his DR was one or above and two wins in which his DR was one or below of those 12 losses four were to Nadal and three to Djokovic so many of them in Grand Slam finals so uh yeah we could be celebrating or marking because we're an unbiased show uh Federer 110 today instead of Federer 100 and I know you can always do what if and that the better the player the more they're going to have tough losses than lucky wins but it was still striking to me how often that happened, especially early in his career when he was trying to get his first and then second and third titles. I think he lost six of his first eight finals, and in half of those, he actually outperformed his opponent based on DR. Huh. Wow. Okay. I uh, Another factor that I want to look at with Federer's, all of his titles and, and finals, is whether draw luck helped him out or not. Because uh, one of the things that conspiracy theorists love to come back to is the, the, the there was a long sequence of slams in which Nadal and Djokovic ended up in the same half, I think it was. So Federer was protected from having to face both of them in the same slam. I forget how long it was or exactly when that was happening. And But I know that there was some story you could tell where the odds of that happening was extremely low. And I was thinking about that again because the I think it was the tournament director in Dubai said a week before the tournament that he hoped that the draw helped Federer out. And I mean, I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't saying anything even remotely nefarious. He was just saying he you know wanted this historical thing to happen at his event like any tournament director would. But at the same time, <laughs> you have all these tournament directors who have an have a pretty clear number one crowd attraction who at least at some level they would like to see in the final or lifting the trophy at the end of the week. John Isner. Yeah. John Isner. Um, Or, I mean, if Isner's not there, then I guess they'd settle for Federer. 
and there's been all these murmurings over the years that Federer is getting getting a little bit of luck in that regard. So I don't subscribe to that. I pretty much, but you have to take as your prior that there's there's nothing untoward happening, that no player is getting particularly lucky. But I would be interested to see if the numbers bear that out, if, if Federer has gotten a little bit lucky over the years. I mean, it was clearly bad luck that he kept drawing Nadal in the final of the French Open. I don't know why <laughs> Nadal couldn't be in a totally different draw. Why did he have to be in the same draw? Yeah, I mean, isn't there, there's that big challenger in Prosteov in Czech Republic, the second week of Roland Garros every year. So I don't see why he couldn't go play that. Burditch played that a few years. Rafa like. loves Czech food. Yeah, it, it's bizarre that he keeps showing up in Paris. Yeah, lots of counterfactuals to explore. So that's probably enough about Federer since we've moved on to some pretty ridiculous aspects of his record. The other winner this week was someone that we can probably talk about even more, which is Nick Kyrgios. Wait, one of the other two. Come on, let's not completely discount the third tournament. <laughs> wow, that's unlike me. But yes, there are there are three tournaments. One is just barely not a challenger The, the in Sao Paulo. I guess we'll mention that in a little while. But the, the other ATP 500, let's say that. The, Accurate. Yep, the other ATP 500 last week was in Acapulco. And the winner there was Nick Kyrgios, and Kyrgios had a really tough road to winning that title. He beat Nadal in the second round, Vavrinka in a tough match in the third, uh, Isner in another tough match in the semifinals, and then a surprisingly clean and easy win over Alexander Zverev in the final. And we haven't seen much from Kyrgios lately. I mean, I did Nobody ever really wants to play this guy, given we know he can beat the, the best players in the world. But, Carl, have we seen anything from Kyrgios lately that suggested that he might pull off a tournament win like this? No, I mean, I think I, as the subpar prognosticator I am, said I thought he was injured the last time I saw him and that he wasn't moving well. I think it was against Albert on Delray. Yeah, that's and right. He, and and his results also just haven't been there for a while. So his ranking had dropped really low. Um, yeah, just not a lot of reason to expect him to do it. And in fact, that you know, many points of the Nadal match, his second match of the tournament, there were not a lot of reasons to expect him to go any any further in the draw. But tennis can be small margins. Yeah, and in the case of Kyrgios, the margins are often incredibly small. So you pointed out to me at the time that the the dominance ratio in that Nadal match was way in Rafa's favor. I think that so somebody said on Twitter, I mentioned in the Around the Net um, blog recap last weekend, that it was, of all of Nadal's career losses, it was the one in which his dominance ratio was the highest. So of all of uh, one way you could put that is of all the matches he's ever lost, it was the one that he most deserved to win. Uh, is in, in Kyrgios ended up with three matches like that over the course of the tournament, which has only happened a handful of times before. He barely won half of his total points over the whole tournament. Is is this something that is? Is this like a secret sauce for Nick Kyrgios, or does it mean he was just really lucky and he really? only kind of deserve to win the tournament. I mean, we're seeing a ton of stats like this, and we've seen them before with other Kyrgios wins. What do you take away from these, Carl? Well, you know, we mentioned John Isner a couple of times, and they had a really close match, again, with Kyrgios having the lower DR and yet winning. 
And if you look at, uh, if I look at the stats that you pulled when, when I requested them about like other tournaments and, and other players who won titles with, um, with very close to 50% of points won and one or more matches where they were outperformed on DR, Isner's name came up for a few of his titles. And statistically, Kyrgios is a lot like Isner. He plays, he holds almost every time and he almost never breaks. And I mean, it's, I think, over 90% for both, at least when he's playing well. Or, sorry, it's probably high 80s uh, for not breaking and, you know, one of the lowest rates on, on tour for breaking. So he's going to get into a lot of tie breaks. He's going to have a lot of matches which come down to tie breaks or to one break of serve. Um, so that, in that sense, I think it's to be expected. Maybe from having watched a lot of those matches, I have been overly influenced. But it does feel like there's a certain boldness and confidence in those close matches in the big moments that carries him over or maybe it's increased focus when it counts and he's not paying that close attention when it's on serve and he's down 30 love but um whatever it is it does seem like he has won more than his fair share of those matches uh i don't i don't know for sure if the numbers back it up and also i'm guessing that the numbers don't back up um that this is for most players a sustainable thing as opposed to a fluke yeah, in general, they don't. It's it's not a sustainable thing. But on the other hand, when we're doing aggregate type of analysis over hundreds of players in their careers, somebody like Isner or Kyrgios can kind of slip through the cracks. Like, they can be unique, and it's it's difficult to establish statistically that they really have these skills because they just look like an outlier, and there's going to be an outlier anyway if you look at a few hundred players. Um but yeah, that, that that makes sense to me that this is something we've talked about with, with Isner before in his tiebreak record, that usually my story is for Isner's good tiebreak record is that it isn't necessarily that he's so much better in tiebreaks, it's that he's actually making an effort in tiebreaks, whereas his return points won in other games is probably not as good as it would be if he was, if he was giving 100% effort at all times. And Kyrgios, it seems even more clear, is not giving 100% effort all the time. So the story that makes more sense to me is is not that a player like that can somehow find a new level, like commentators like to talk about, like give it 110%. It's that they can, they can sometimes give 100%, but they're not doing it all the time. So at the key moments, they do give 100%. It's just the rest of the time, Kyrgios might only be giving 70. And compared to a lot of other players especially somebody like David Ferrer, who's on his retirement tour this year. It seems like someone like Ferrer is giving 95% all the time. You're never going to catch him just kind of fluffing away a point. But Kyrgios definitely does that, and that maybe can explain these weird results. That if he, can, he, he realizes that some points aren't that, aren't that important, but when you're calculating DR or total points one or something, it treats every point as if they are equally important, which they're clearly not. Yeah, and just a, a stat that I don't know whether it's the right one to evaluate this, but it strikes me as one possible indicator of what we're talking about here, like, you know, waiting on significance of points or uh, players who, who step up when, when the score demands it, but otherwise are, are not playing their best. In, 
he has played 15 career matches at tour level where his DR was between 0.9 and 0.99. So if you were breaking up matches in terms of like how close you'd expect and how likely you'd expect him to win, maybe you would do it by like uh, a tenth of a, a DR. Um, so in that band of 0.9 to 0.99, my guess is that players win, I don't know, 30% of the time because those are close matches, but their opponent is getting more chances. Does that yeah, seem that reasonable? Yeah, that right. Maybe not even quite that much, but yeah, 20 to 30% sounds good to me. So he's had 15 of those matches in his career. Guess how many he's won? Nine. Eleven. Eleven? Yeah. I thought nine was aggressive, but wow. Yeah. That, that's really something. So I think there's probably a more systematic way to look at it over all of his matches, but that's at least suggestive to me. Uh, he has a whole bunch of wins with lower DRs that I'm not counting, and he has a few losses with DRs over one. But um, in that band, it's really striking. Yeah, this is the frustrating thing to me about talking about Kyrgios in depth like this is I, I feel like I, I could write like 10 articles just about these issues with Kyrgios. Uh, he, is, he is so unique, and he is... A lot of these things also hold for Isner to some extent, but Kyrgios, because he is so mercurial, uh, he ends up being more interesting. It seems more tempting to write 10 articles about Kyrgios than it is to write them about Isner. Um, I was I was thinking about this. This is not something we back up with numbers, but he does seem to be one of the most unique players on tour. Uh, just bet- between... Like, the mix of skills he has, like the, the the mix of ways in which he he deploys them, or the levels at which he deploys them. I mean, do you think that's right, Carl? Is he is he? Would you say he's the most unique guy on tour? Most unique. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most most unique. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by on tour. Like, there are all kinds of characters who we love on tour. I, I, I'm on record as being a Dustin Brown fan. I think they have a fair amount in common and maybe played at Wimbledon a few years ago and seem to really enjoy each other. But I think Brown probably has an even more unusual mix of, of things that he does. But, um, you know, one of the one of the things that maybe we're, we're trying to capture is, like, unpredictability from shot to shot. Uh, which is a very hard thing to quantify and model, but that feels very high with Curious. So, you know, everyone these days occasionally hits drop shots, but when he chooses to do it from which positions seems really surprising in a way that ends up being very successful because his opponent is surprised and not in position. It's often not successful because there's a reason guys don't hit it from there. So it maybe sort of evens out, but from a spectating point of view, it makes it feel like nothing else we've seen. Do you, do you think that might be what's going on with him? That's definitely part of it. I, I wonder whether, whether some of those things are even effective. Like the, We've seen him hit tweeners when he doesn't have to. He did one really glaring example of that during the final. There were two moments in the final that I can remember when he he obviously set up for a, a chipped forehand, like sort of a, a very a very obviously telegraphed forehand drop shot, but ended up hitting a, a drive slice, I guess you'd call it, like a Nicolescu-type forehand slice. Which and, is a favorite Federer move, too. Oh, it is. Okay, I can... I, hadn't thought about him doing that. Um, so I said, curious did it twice. 
Zverev didn't really seem to fall for it either time. Like, I, I've seen other players do it and and catch their opponent totally off guard, like leaning in and not able to move back and hit a decent shot. But I don't think it had any effect on Zverev unless it was some kind of hangover effect on later shots. Uh, but do you think that all of the unpredictability improves his results? I mean, does, it, does it actually have a positive benefit on his game? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, with a serve like he's got, he's going to be competitive in lots of matches without any of that stuff. And he loses lots of matches using it. And I can also think of so many examples where it feels like he's ahead in the point, throws in a changeup that doesn't take, and the opponent hits a winner. And it's like, oh, you you, you were 60 or 70% to win that point. And once you hit that shot, you were at about 15%. And that was a really <laughs> poor decision. Um, there's probably something along with his serve that he can gain from robbing opponents of rhythm. I That's a thing I've heard people say, and I've never figured out how you would go about studying that. Maybe the match charting project could help there. But you can imagine against certain opponents, including maybe especially Nadal, who struggled against Dustin Brown a couple of times on grass, that not consistently getting balls that are of the depth and height and spin and speed that lets them prepare for and hit their ground strokes over and over, that that could hurt them over the course of a match. So maybe there's something there with Kyrgios. But again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I haven't seen anything that quantifies that kind of effect. And is it real? Yeah, that is, that is a tricky one. And you're right. It's something that commentators pretty unfailingly point out. And I, I did notice that during the Zverev match in the final as well. I think it was the beginning of the second set. The commentators specifically said that Kyrgios had this ability to unsettle his opponents I think the commentator said it was like his his number one skill or his leading skill or something like that. And I mean, it, it's really tough to to pin down these sort of passing comments. Maybe it's not even fair to try to pin them down and test them all because I mean, if someone took everything we said over the course of a podcast and looked for falsifiable things, they could find plenty. But it sticks out uh, that. I think we like to give credit to the mental game kind of stuff, even if there's not a lot of evidence for it. So, I mean, my first reaction is always, like, Kyrgios has this this world-class serve. He, he might have the best serve of, of any active tennis player. And instead, we're focusing on his ability to mentally unsettle his opponents. I mean, do you think that's defensible at all? That, like, this the, the unsettling is as effective as having this great serve? Oh, God, no. I mean, that's <laughs> that's where I started with, was like, he's going to hold almost every time with his serve, whatever else he does, whether he plays a normal, whether he plays whatever would be the conventional version of his, the deployment of his skills or, or a very unconventional one. Um, so I, I think we're kind of nipping around the edges here. Uh, but, you know, I guess... Because it's such a big deal when he breaks, because it's rare, and because he'll usually win the set when he does, he'll almost always win the set when he does, uh, we're looking at like what makes that possible, because the serve feels like the understood quantity that, that we always uh, start with, especially in men's tennis. So if, yeah, if we take the serve for granted and we say we're trying to figure out why, A, why Kyrgios breaks at all, given he's, his return points one rates are usually abysmally low, like down in Isner territory, but also why he wins all these matches with dominance ratios below one, winning less than 50% of points. Do you think that's part of the explanation? I mean, when he gets to these key points, 
is the fact that he's unpredictable and unsettling his opponents part of the explanation of why he's winning more of those points? It feels like a good theory for sure. I mean, and part of what I mean by unpredictable and I don't think I really described well before is he's hitting conventional shots at conventional speeds in the rally and then seemingly out of nowhere and with no uh, telegraphing based on his windup, he hits incredibly powerful shots that, that end the rally from what seem like neutral positions. And that that seems like something he uh, he uses a lot in big moments. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, when we have enough charted matches of his really close matches or even just close sets and can look at whether he has different tendencies toward the end of them, that can be part of your 10-part series on Curious. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, we might have enough already. I think we have almost 50 charted Curious matches, uh, which is a lot for someone at his age and average rank, thanks to the fact that so many of his matches have been either high-profile or interesting or against interesting opponents. Um, one last thing we should talk about with Kyrgios is the underhanded serve. And that... I only heard the sort of third-hand discussion of it, so by the time people were talking about it on Twitter, I was already... I was, I was kind of tired of, of this discussion before it started, so I'm going to start fresh. Um, he just did it once against Nadal. Is that right? I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Nadal came out of the match talking about how Kyrgios wasn't showing respect to himself for the crowd or his opponent and all that stuff. It, you're pretty strongly in favor of trick shottery stuff like that, like underhanded serves, right? Uh, yeah. I, I don't think of that one as a trick shot. I guess it's sort of a trick shot, but yeah, I'm in favor of any ball you hit within the rules within the court it, that helps you win a point is fair game. And sidebar, someone on Twitter was, was asking us to talk more about the Carl Bialik tennis game. Uh, <laughs> and this feels like, it feels like a good time to point out that this is not just talk coming from Carl. It is, is fully internalized. Yes, uh, uh, yes, to, to an extent that I forget what was the, oh, yes, you, you've gotten mad at me before for hitting drop shot returns. So I think that's like a similar, it's on return, not serve, but maybe a similar issue of like, is it fair to take advantage of a guy being at or behind the baseline in a moment they'd never expect a short ball um, or not? I would say that if someone is hitting drop shot returns, it's definitely fair game to hit underhand serves. It's also probably fair game to knock over their water bottles and pretty much anything else you can think of. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's not barred in the rules of tennis either, so how can I <laughs> be opposed? Exactly. So the the other thing from the Nadal match what, that, that came out in the discussion afterward was curious trying to get but Nadal wait, to... But, yeah. Sorry, just quickly. I think we haven't... I don't think anyone followed up with Rafa when he said Kyrgios has no respect for opponent crowd himself to to make sure that he was talking about the underhand serve right like we're, we're somewhat speculating that that was part or all of what he was referring to i think so i didn't look carefully enough at the transcript or the reports afterward to to say for sure uh the other issue during that match was Kyrgios was trying to play faster during on his service games and was getting frustrated and nadal playing at rafa's usual slow pace 
uh, as far as I understand it, the rules are that the returner has to play to the server's pace. I mean, it, I have that right, don't I? That's certainly what I've always heard. I haven't read the relevant line in the book. Uh, I've also, though, never – well, I've almost never seen it enforced that way. Like, I don't think I've ever seen someone given an ace when his opponent said, no, no, I wasn't ready. Yeah, that, what I have seen a few times, and I, I can recall more instances of this in women's matches than men's matches, is just sort of the, the unofficial warnings being given, just the umpire pointing out that you, know, you have to be ready when your opponent is ready to serve, that kind of thing. Um, and I wonder whether the shot clock is going to have a further effect on this, whether the even though the shot clock is intended for the server uh, and will be enforced against the server... I wonder if the fact that there is a shot clock will mean the returner will have a little bit more leeway there as well. Um, but that's another thing with, with Kyrgios. He varies his, his speed on the serve, not the speed of the serve itself, but his time between points enormously. Like He'll, he'll range from one of the fastest players on tour to one of the slowest. Uh, do you think that's another thing that falls into the category of you know unsettling the opponent, possible things that could have follow-on effects that work in his advantage? If he did it during a match, it seems like it would have to. Um, I've definitely noticed it, like, at different stages of his career. Does he also do it... Oh, like, everyone varies a little bit during matches because of all sorts of reasons, like the, the length of the previous rally. But um, does he do that... Like, does he go from his within his full range in the same match? I've seen it. I'm not sure whether he does it much more than other players because, as, as you point out, yeah, it varies a lot based on the the, the length of the previous point. Um, I've noticed that at 15 love or love 15, players serve a lot quicker, um, unless it has been a really long rally to start the to start the game. But but yeah, I mean, I I, I think Kyrgios is just a little more extreme at both ends. If he's serving quickly, he will serve very quickly, like um, like Gail Mulfies will do that. Do that do that as well but if there is a long rally Kyrgios will let the crowd have it say he will be as slow as possible I mean he'll he'll be slower than Rafa in getting around to check the balls and get himself up to the line and, and hit the serve so I'm not sure whether the effect is that much more dramatic than it is for other players but it is I think there's probably is something quantifiable there maybe he's just trying to make a really uh, subtle commentary on time between points and point out to his fellow pros that it doesn't matter how long you take, you have the same results. Cause I think he's just as effective with very little time as with very, very long period between points. Yeah, you would, you would think so. Um, I mean, for one thing, he doesn't seem to exert a lot of effort, even in long rallies. When he gets in long rallies, he'll, he'll often, it'll often just be a, a backhand to backhand sort of thing. He won't be putting a ton into every shot. Um, that's probably enough on, on Kyrgios, at least pending my 10 part series. Is there anything we haven't touched on Carl that you thought we should talk about I, with Nick? I have a quick one with Roger, since we talked about the match charting project with Nick and there's almost 50 matches. I was wondering if you knew which two finals Federer has played at tour level are not yet charted. Mm, they're all charted. Oh. Um, if they're... It, are you looking at his player page on Tennis Abstract? Yeah, is that a little behind? It might not be behind. There might just be some issue with matching up the the match or tournament IDs with the charts themselves. Okay. 
But yeah, we have every one of Federer's finals. We have all of Nadal's finals except for the very first one for which there is no video that I'm aware of. It was the 2004 Auckland final against Herbati. And then we're getting close with Djokovic's career finals and Murray's career finals. But for the early years, we don't have video for all of them. So I'm not sure whether we're going to be able to get there, but we're getting closer. But definitely for Roger. Roger is by far the best represented player in the match charting project with over 400 charted matches. So, Well, that means that there are, um, what, a thousand something not yet charted? So charters can, <laughs> can have more to do if the That's, video is around? Yeah, there's and there's video for most of them. I'm a little bit afraid of how many we could end up with if, if people do pursue all the available video. Uh, I think one person is working on his 2000 round four match at Roland Garros against Alex Karecha. Never really expected to get that one in the database, but sounds good to me. Glad to have it. But since I'm guessing many of you are Federer fans, if you're looking for research projects, there's tons of data there and lots of interesting things to look into, even if you want more data than we have for someone like Curios. So we promised to talk a little bit about the final ATP tournament and some other players not named Federer or Kyrgios. And the, the third tournament was the, the indoor clay in Sao Paulo, which is a, usually a, an atypically fast clay court surface. And that was Guido Pella's first title, which is nice for him. Maybe the bigger story there is that Laszlo Gera, we talked about more last week, he made the final backing up his career best result, having won the 500 in Rio the week before. Um, it's giving us a really bizarre result in that Gera was ranked so low just a few weeks ago that he didn't make the main draw cut of Indian Wells, which is pretty a pretty low cut because there's a 96-player draw. So the cut's probably in the 80s or something like that. He wasn't there, but then he won a 500, made the final in 250. So he got a wild card in Indian Wells, and because he's now ranked 31 or 32, I think, he's going to be seated as a wild card who couldn't make the cut. And this is someone who's never won a match at a Masters 1000. I think he's won four career hardcore matches <coughs> at tour level. Um, do you think that, I mean, we're seeing Gera play better than he ever has before, racking up these wins in South America. Um, do you give him a chance to, to win a match or two in Indian Wells? Yeah, I mean, it's such a big draw that if he, he – and he's not going to face a seed in the first round. So he could face someone who got in automatically but is not that good on hard courts. Um, he could face someone com- coming in through qualifying with a ranking in the mid-100s. So uh, definitely give him a shot at a match, May, maybe two. But um, it, it is a funny time of year when uh, – because they're such big draws, we get a lot of players, and some of them do not have, do not get into that draw with any hardcore results. Yeah, as is the case with all the slams. I mean, it's interesting to to look at some players like like Gera is a good example who had just snuck into the top 100 or so for a while, and you can pay pretty close attention to the tour and not hear anything about them, but you go back and look at the results and had like a round one loss to Jeremy Shardy or something at the last Grand Slam. So there, there's all these results that 
never really show up on the news generally aren't that interesting until one of the players breaks through and all of a sudden you're curious where they came from or how they got there or how they performed on the surface in the past. Yeah, this, for reasons I can't even remember, I was looking at Filippo Volandri on tennisabstract.com the other the other day, and he managed to like keep his ranking in slam territory for the last seven years of his career without winning a single slam match. So he lost his last 20, it looks like, maybe <laughs> more. And during that period, I think he played 35 matches at tour level on harder grass and won one of them. But again, like the ranking was high enough. Some of the tournaments were ran- mandatory. It, it is it is a a funny side of the edges of the tour. Yeah, I, I way back in the early days of the blog, I, I think I I looked into the players who were were winning the most matches on clay without any match wins or even matches played on hard courts. And th- there are always a couple of guys who are just playing clay every possible week and then taking their rankings and going and playing Wimbledon and so on. But generally only winning matches on clay, often winning a ton of matches on clay. I mean, there's no, there's no real clay circuit to play at tour level for most of the year like there used to be. But if you want to play only clay court tournaments, you can stay busy most of the year at challengers. And there are a few people who've done that. Sounds like Philandry at least partly fit that bill. So two other guys I want to talk about before touching on Indian Wells a little bit are two men who faced each other in the Dubai semifinals, Stefano Tsitsipas and Gail Mulfies. Let's start with Tsitsipas. Uh, he's now in the top 10. He's also up to, I think, number eight in, in the ELO, ELO ratings as well. So not a fluke that he's in the ATP top 10. Um, we talked about, we've talked about him a few times now. And I remember after, at the end of last year, with his ranking largely based on the run in Canada last summer, you were a little skeptical about what we would see from him this this year. Uh, now he's made the Australian Open semifinal. He won a tournament uh, two weeks ago. He made it to the final and lost to Federer in Dubai. Uh, do you think he? I mean, do you think he's going to stick as a top ten player now? Um. I think there's a good chance for a while, especially because most of his points have come since, what was it, August. So I think just from a points perspective, he doesn't even have to do that much the next five months and he'll stay there. You know, I still see on his results a lot of really close wins that um, came also early enough in tournaments that if he hadn't won them, his ranking, his ELO and our perception of him could be quite different. But there's, there's a pretty big group from probably around number five to 15 that is fairly close in ranking, fairly close in ability, and no reason Sitsabas doesn't belong in that group, whether he's in the top half of that group and stays there. You know, I, I think I said this last time, even if I'm skeptical of him now, he should still be improving. So wherever he was last August, he probably is better now. And I think that's showing. So, yeah, I mean, from and from watching him, there isn't anything big I can point to as a real deficiency in his game. If anything, I think he's moving better now than he was last year, uh, which is which is really impressive because he's a tall guy. So I, I'm i not a full believer. I, I don't see him winning a slam this year, but he's – or I don't even think I see him making a slam final this year. But 
I I think he will continue to to do well at a lot of tournaments. Do you see him winning a slam in his career? Yes. How many? Two. So of the players of his generation, let's say anybody who's, I don't know, under 30 right now, or under 28 right now, um, who do you think wins the most slams? So we're talking, I guess, Tsitsipas, Kachanov, Medvedev, Shapovalov, Aljay Aliasim, Laszlo Gera, so on. Zverev. Zverev. I knew I was forgetting somebody. The most obvious pick. Okay, okay. now you have to answer those two. How many for Sitsipas? Yeah. I'd like two. I'll say three just to be different. Um, I guess I also have to say, say Zverev for, for most, most slam titles. It's, it's, it's getting increasingly difficult to see him win them. That's the tough thing about these sort of predictions. Like We have so much evidence that he's not winning slams. It is difficult to imagine him doing it. So, Well, it, it, it's one of the reasons I find it interesting when Federer reaches milestones to scroll through his early years. And I think I brought this up on the show before, too. But he was losing close matches. He was not going as far as expected at slams. He was struggling to win titles. Um, so not, not to say that means everyone who fits that profile will have Federer's career. But it gives me reason to remain patient with Zverev, given that he's overall been so good on tour the last few years and stayed in the top five. Yeah, that's a good point. And he, he is head and shoulders above everyone in his age group. And it, the fact that he's been so good makes it easy to forget how, how good he is. Like he's, he broke through so early that when his peers are breaking through Zverev kind of get, gets pushed out of the story because he's just winning a lot of matches. Like he always has. So yeah, I think, I think he'll get there. He'll, he'll win some slams. So, other guy I wanted to talk about was the person Sitsipas beat in the Dubai semifinal is Gail Mulfies, who's had a great year so far. Um, also came into Dubai with a winning streak, having won, I forget which tournament it was. but Rotterdam. Rotterdam, right. I think he made it to the semis in Sofia as well. Or the, I think that's right. Um, so he looks really good. People are giving part of the credit to increased focus and his possibly related to his relationship with Alina Svitolina, who's a pretty intense player by all accounts I've heard. Um, Mulfies is 32, and I think people are talking about him in a way we haven't for quite a while. I mean, do you think that... I think we've, we've always known that Mulfies had the talent to accomplish this about anything, but for various reasons, injuries among them, he hasn't done that. Uh, do you think we could see... Like a, a, a bona fide, let, let, let's define a big step forward as like beating his career best ranking, which I think is number six. Um, do you think it's possible that in Mulfies' form right now, he could he could improve on that at age 32? Ooh, it's tough. I mean, he's still got a long way to go. Uh, I guess it's it's possible. And if he keeps playing like he did these last two tournaments, and when I said Tsitsipas had some close wins that could have been losses, I mean, that match against Mulfies, that that Monfils outplayed him in, in various respects. Um, and who knows in the final could be talking about Federer 99 right now. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think if he was back in the top 15, that would already be a really impressive accomplishment. I'm excited that both he and Sanga, another Frenchman about the same age, same generation, longtime Davis cup teammates, also a very exciting player. 
he's also had an, a nice run this year. Tsonga was coming back from a longer time off from the sport, but I think both of them could be in the mix at, at some big tournaments this year, and, and that will be a welcome return. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things you said about Kyrgios earlier, the fact that he he can just come out with a big shot in the middle of a rally without really any warning, that's that's the skill I always associated with Monfils. He's, he's always been a little bit too passive in rallies for most commentators, but when he does let loose, I mean, he, he can make shots as well as anyone else can. I mean, he, he can hit incredibly hard and, and achieve some pretty impressive angles. He can also beat you with his serve in a variety of ways. So if we are seeing uh, the late career focus of someone in the curious mold, then that's a pretty exciting thing to think about. So I had planned to give us a little more time at the end of this episode to talk about Indian Wells, and we don't have that time, but we still have Indian Wells coming up. So let's touch on a couple things. Since we've been talking about men this whole time, let's let's get them out of the way first. Last year's Indian Wells was... A really exciting Del Potro Federer final. Uh, unfortunately, Del Potro is is injured and will miss the tournament, making Federer the sort of defending finalist. Uh, and strangely enough, since since Djokovic lost early, he wasn't back yet at this point last year. The other semifinalists were Borna Chorich and Milos Ronic, which that would make for a pretty surprising three players to find in the semifinals again. Uh, we haven't seen Djokovic since Australia. Do you think, Carl, that Djokovic is your favorite going in? Yeah, big favorite. Big favorite. How? If it comes to a Djokovic-Federer match in the final, I guess it could be before the final, depending on the draw, since Federer's not in the top two right now. If, if we get to a Djokovic-Federer head-to-head, what do you think the, the percentages are in that match? 64-36. Okay. It's a little more Djokovic favoring than the Elos right now. I just took a look at that after Dubai went into the system, and I think it's a little bit inside 60-40 through yesterday's matches. But that certainly sounds plausible to me. A lot more plausible than a recap of of last year's results in which Djokovic lost to Taro Daniel in his first match. Um, Anyone else on the men's side you're particularly interested in watching Indian Wells? Oh, a, a bunch, but I I think we, we've both been excited on the show about the prospects of Kachanov and Medvedev, so it would be interested to see what they do. They've been disappointing at some recent tournaments. Uh, and, yeah, I guess those are, those are the main ones. You know, Nishikori also is... You asked earlier about like players under 30 and who's who's going to win slams. I was like, oh, you know, Nishikori's still under 30 and could still win a slam. And, and his ranking is up really high and he had a really good year last year. So I'm interested to see him as well. Okay. It's a couple of good names to watch. It's, it's kind of easy easy to forget about Kachanov and Medvedev because their names don't show up in the press as much as Kyrgios even as when they're not winning. Um, or even when they, when they are winning in that case. But... I think in, in terms of their, their promise, they're right up there with Sitsapas, maybe not quite with Zverev, but definitely players to watch. And, and Kachanov has had his breakthrough in Paris last year, but we're still waiting on a really big statement win from Medvedev. But he's still, I think, sitting at sixth in the overall ELO ratings. So 
the potential is definitely there. On the women's side last year, it was really the breakthrough for Naomi Osaka, who won her first big title. And clearly she's been able to build on that in the ensuing 12 months. Uh, the, the shock for me to remember going back and looking at the results from last year was the player she beat in the final, Daria Kazakina, who has not had, a, had as good of a 12-month since, especially not this year. She's lost basically all of her matches. She won one Fed Cup match against a really low-rated player, and then she lost, she won her first-round match in Dubai against someone rated in the ranked in the 170s, but basically hasn't won any matches against tour-level competition. Um, I'll ask you about both of those, Carl. So with Osaka, um, do you think she's going to defend her title? Well, as you said before in the show, it's always under 50% for just about any player going into any tournament. So, no, I don't think she'll defend her title. So we can do like a reverse auction. So we've established it's below (laughs) 50%, below 30% for Osaka to defend? Yeah, it's a big field. Below 20? Just below. Just below. Okay, I'll go just below 15. Okay. I'm... I'm even more skeptical, partly because I love the field so much and because Osaka lost her last match to Kristina Mladenovic. Um, I'm not sure what to think about Osaka responding to the pressure to defend. I mean, it's encouraging that she played so well in Australia uh, the first time that so many eyes were on her, but at the same time, no one was really expecting her to win. This is the first time she's going into a big tournament as the defending champion. So it'll be interesting to see how she responds to that pressure. And then with Kazakina, um, she she ducked into the top 10 toward the end of last year, and she's done almost nothing since. She's still very young, so we're not writing her off the way that you took me to task for writing off Yelena Ostapenko a couple weeks ago. Um, what do you think about Kazakina? Do you think she can... Do you still see her as a player who can be winning premier-level titles, maybe even contending for slams, like, in that top 10, top 15 range? Yeah, I mean, sure. Like, we're talking about a period since Moscow last October, and all sorts of things could be going on. We've talked before about how slumps often turn out to be indicators of injuries, sometimes even without the player knowing it at the time. Um, Some of the losses were close. But, uh, yeah, I don't want to write her off over too short a period. Um, and as you said, she's young. I don't expect her to get back to the final at Indian Wells or probably come close based on how she's been doing. But yeah, I mean, she was a quarter finalist at Wimbledon last year, quarter finalist at the French Open. This is all within the last year. So still, still holding out some hope for her. And same question with the men. Is it other players you're particularly interested to watch on the women's side in Indian Wells? Again, a lot, uh, a lot of players. Um, <laughs> everyone's wondering what effect Svitolina is having on Monfils. I wonder if Svitolina is going to start breaking out some Monfils-style tactics, but probably not. Probably uh, not. I, you know, I, th- I think Kerber, um, just seeing seeing where she's at. Um, Halep, similar. Is Halep playing? Yeah. Okay. As far as I know, everyone notable is playing. I, I don't recall seeing any any stories about players being out with an injury. You know, Petra has a shot at number one, so ah. not not a tournament where I'd expect her to, to do it or to, to win the tournament, but 
cool to, to think about, at least while she's still in the draw. Uh, we've been a little disappointed by Sabalenka lately. Where's Venus Williams at? As you mentioned, semifinalist last year, played a really exciting semifinal. Um, is she able to get back into the mix at big tournaments, or is, is this close to her, her swan song? I, I wouldn't count her out because she's had some low points before. Um, yeah, I, a lot of players. I, Serena, of course, we haven't seen. So how, how will she bounce back from that tough loss at the Australian Open? Yeah, and... and... One more name to add to the list is Sophia Kennan, who we've we've touched on a couple times uh, since the U.S. Open, and she just reached the final in Acapulco, losing to Wang Yifan that there. But Kennan's got uh, has stacked up some really good wins over the course of this year, including beating Azarenka in a tough three-setter in Acapulco. So I, I don't think she's in a position to win a premiere at this stage, but. She's she's making steady progress, and she's certainly a threat against just about anybody on tour. So she's increasingly a player to watch. And gave Halep that really tough match in Australia. Right. So let's call that good for episode 51. Anything I'm forgetting, Carl, before we say goodbye on this one? I just wanted to remind listeners that Jeff started a really cool weekly so far series around the net and it's it's a great collection of links to work he he's done and other people have done and interesting analytical work in other sports too so you should check it out yeah check it out and if you think there's stuff missing from it that you'd like to see in there um let me know um emails best twitter might also reach me so yeah check that out and the podcast is likely to be back next week Carl is taking the week off for inexplicable reasons. But like I say, we'll be back soon with him, back next week with episode 52. Thank you, Carl, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. I'll miss you. I'll miss you too, Carl. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you next week.